So we couldn't help when we started singing that at 8.15, Sherry and I were up here chuckling because, you know, there's an old joke that's been around forever, you know, the, the, the little boy that knows the first name of God, and the mother goes, oh, really, what is it? And he says, it's Andy. And she goes, really? She says, how do you know that? And she said, well, we just did it in the song. You know, Andy talks to me, and Andy walks with me, and <clears throat> we were up here just... Uh, that one's been around a long time. So, uh, <laughs> he really, yeah, it has that. That was a beautiful anthem, that hallelujah piece. Woo! Um, so this piece, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about second line living this morning. I'm going to start, uh, just, just kind of set the stage with the passage out of John. This is when uh, Jesus goes to Lazarus' uh, household, and, you know, uh, the sisters have come out to him and said, you know, Lord, if you were here, you know, my brother wouldn't have died. And, and so he's responding, and he says, uh, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that really is the question that, you know, do you, do you believe this, really? So we're going to talk a little bit about second line living. Y'all know what the second line is? Do y'all, anybody here? So uh, if, if you're in New Orleans and you go to one of the big parades in New Orleans, what will happen is at the front of the parade will be the, the organized groups and the floats and so forth and so on, and all that will go through. And then behind that will be this mob of people, and they'll be dressed crazy, and they'll be dancing in the street, and they'll be singing and playing you know, music and all this, and it's just chaotic and very disorganized. Well, that's, that, that's the second line. It's the, 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 the rest of the crew that comes along, the people that have just joined in the procession to celebrate. But it actually, it goes back before that in history. Uh, it comes from the history of uh, doing funerals in New Orleans, where they would do the, the more jazz-type jazz funerals, and they would have the service in the church. And then as the family was leaving the church, uh, they would load the casket onto the, the hearse, uh, and the mourners and, and the family would walk alongside the casket as it was being drawn to the cemetery. And the rest of the people would be behind that. And they would be singing and celebrating. And it would, you know, this kind of chaotic scene in the back where they're all back there and they're dancing and they're singing. And just, it's, it's, a, it's a great celebration because it's a proclamation of the resurrection. Uh, in, this, in this scenario, the, the funeral and the family goes in the front, the casket and the family goes in front, but the group that comes behind the second line is the group that is proclaiming and celebrating the gift of the resurrection for the person who they are getting ready to bury. So uh, Clayton and Mary, who uh, wrote this book, when their, when their mother passed away, their mother was Scots, and so when she passed away, they had her service, a very traditional kind of Scots service, and, and at the end of that, they were piped out of uh, the sanctuary to an old Scots piece of music. After they walked out of the sanctuary following the bagpipes uh, out, uh, they then went to the fellowship hall where they were going to have a reception. And as they walked into the reception, they were greeted by a very different piece of music. That 
that's the second line. <laughs> the first part is the first line, the family, but the second line is that celebration that lifts up and celebrates the gift of the resurrection. And, and the question is, do we live in that? And, and do we really believe? Let's pray. Mighty Father, we come on this morning, we ask your presence to be in the midst of us. Uh, we ask uh, your life to be poured into our lives and your light to be poured into our darkness. Uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm going to take you back to that passage of scripture we read on Easter Sunday out of John's gospel. Uh, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Just remind you what, that Jesus had three times predicted before this moment in the gospel uh, that he's going to be arrested, that he's going to be falsely accused, that he's going to be crucified, that he's going to die, and that he's going to be raised up. He's told all of the disciples this before. And yet on this morning when Mary comes to the tomb, she comes to finish the burial preparations for the body that had been interrupted by sundown on Friday. Uh, she comes expecting him to be there. Uh, even though he's told them otherwise, that's the plan. And so she's coming there, and, and, and the stones rolled away from the tomb, and the tomb is empty, and her assumption is not that he's been raised up. Her assumption is that someone has taken his body, someone's stolen the body. And, and so she stands there weeping, and, and first she encounters the two men in white, two angels who, who explain, and, and she still can't understand it, you know, she still thinks somebody's stolen the body, and then, and then in her grief and with tears in her eyes, and in the early morning light, she turns around and, and runs pretty much into Jesus standing there, and, and doesn't even recognize him, assuming he's the gardener, says, well, please, just, if you'll just tell me what you've done with the body, I'll, I, I will go get it and take care of it. Because up to that point, the reality of the resurrection has not hit her. And she's still stuck in that place that sometimes a lot of us are, assuming that death has the last word. But as soon as he speaks her name, he noticed everything changes. Everything changes. Uh, she shouts back, Rabboni. And, and the fact that he says, don't hold on to me, means she must have you know, reached out to, to embrace him. And in her excitement, she goes back to the rest of the disciples and makes a, that proclamation, I've seen the Lord. In John's gospel, she's the first witness to the resurrection in a day and an age when women were not considered reliable enough to serve as uh, witnesses in a court of law. Uh, God picks Mary to be the first witness and to go tell the other disciples, all the men, 
that she'd seen the Lord, that he's actually been raised up. And there's something radically different at the beginning of the story and at the end of the story in her. Because suddenly the, the whole resurrection has become very real and concrete for her. Clayton uh, Oliphant writes and says, Resurrection is not just a concept, it's a reality. It changes everything. I mean, for too many of us, uh, I think you know, we, we have it as an idea in our head or a concept, but the way we actually live is as death has the final say-so. But the truth of the gospel is that it doesn't. But rather that God has the final say-so. And if we get a hold of that power and understand the reality of the resurrection, it changes, it changes the way we live. And to hold on to resurrection is to have a hope that overcomes our fear. doesn't mean we don't have fears, but it's a hope that overcomes us and allows us to be faithful in the midst of it. And you have that phrase at the end of uh, Matthew's gospel when Jesus is directing the disciples to the Sea of Galilee where he's going to meet them. And he says, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Uh, that do not be afraid uh, that, that shows up so often in the gospel when amazing things are happening. Don't be afraid. Because in the end, God is the one who wins. In the end, God's the one who wins. Uh, Clayton's uncle, John Oliphant, uh, was a pilot during World War II. And uh, those of you who don't know, Clayton's father was Ben Oliphant, who became Bishop Ben Oliphant in the Methodist Church. But uh, his uncle, John, was uh, a pilot in World War II. And on June 8th of 1944, he was shot down over France. Uh, they didn't know, you know, for a long time what had become of him, but several days after he was shot down, uh, his mother, uh, John's mother, received a telegram uh, saying that he had been shot down and that he was missing in action. She called Ben uh, up on the phone and shared the news with him, and they talked and prayed over that. Uh, and the next morning, uh, Ben penned a letter to her. He said, there is very little that I can say because you already know what is in my heart. Last night after your call, I thought and prayed a great deal of the night, and tonight I feel strengthened and am determined to carry on in the best possible way. I would say a few things which I know you've already thought of and are carrying out. Let us not give up hope. All is not lost. There are many chances that he is alive and well. I know that you will never believe, as I never shall, that he is gone until we have definite proof. Something deep inside of me tells me he is not gone. Let us keep faith with John as he would have us do. With that hope and faith, let us face the long days of uncertainty and anxiety that are ahead, doing our daily tasks and work, facing the future unafraid, knowing that no matter what the outcome, we can walk up to it and face it with the same courage, song in our hearts, smile on our faces, our trust in Christ, that John faced whatever came his way. Let us face this as he would have us do. There are many more things I would like to say to you which I cannot seem to say in a letter, but your heart will tell them to you. May faith, trust, and hope so fill your heart that you will become serene in spirit and be filled with the peace of God. Remembering in this time that 
communication was uh, very different from what we're used to and that there was no internet, no easy kind of access and so forth. Uh, it, it would be several months before they would know anything more. And during those months, uh, what would happen is uh, John would be captured by the Germans. Uh, he would survive the crash. He'd be captured by the Germans. He'd be held in a POW camp. He would be tortured many times. And finally, with the help of the French underground, he would escape. He would then serve with the French underground for several months uh, before they returned him to England. And then upon his return to England and after he regained some health, he talked someone into letting him make a phone call. Because remember, in these days, you know, that was a fairly expensive proposition. And so he called Transatlantic to his mother to let her know he was okay. And the story in the family is that when his mother picked up the phone on the other end and first heard his voice, she promptly passed out. <laughs> because after months of uncertainty and unknowing and anxiety, uh, all of a sudden she found that her hope was confirmed. And the interesting thing is that John actually went on to outlive Ben by several years. Ben was the younger brother. Uh, he actually outlived him by uh, quite a few years. So, uh, you know, in the midst of that time, uh, that resurrection hope is what kept them afloat and what gave them the promise to move through that and not give in to being despairing and being in fear. That resurrection hope over outlasts our despair. It outlasts our despair in all of these things. <clears throat> when um, my sister passed away, uh, my mother was a tower of strength uh, at that moment. Uh, she gathered all of us back in the hospital room, and we stood around her bed, and my mother led us in prayer as we did that. And uh, then through the week, uh, she continued to be this, you know, just the rock of strength and was caring for my sister's kids, her grandkids, and being sure they were okay. And and watching over them and, and carry that through the service. Uh, two months after that, we did my nephew, my sister's oldest son's wedding that had already been planned and we insisted that he carry it on, that that's what my sister would want him to do. And, and so we went ahead and, and had that and my mother held up again like a rock. And then once on the other side of the wedding, uh, she promptly fell apart uh, and she sank into a very uh, deep and dark pit. Uh, through that time, my stepfather and I were talking back and forth, and he was trying to figure out how to handle things, and uh, there was some fair concern that she might harm herself uh, through that period of time. After several years of that went by, where she was in that kind of dark place, uh, my nephew, the one that got married, he and his wife had their first child. Uh, they named her after my sister. And so when my mother went and, and held her, held Jude for the first time, uh, suddenly it was like somebody turned the lights back on. Now, there was something about holding that child that somehow or another reconnected her and she remembered who she was as a child of God and she remembered her faith. And from that point forward, although she still was in grief for most of the rest of her life, uh, we never had to worry that she was going to sink into that kind of despair where she might hurt herself. It somehow reconnected her with the reality of God's presence in the midst of us and allowed her to walk through that time of grief and faith. You know, every, uh, every Easter we come and we gather and, and we have a great celebration of the resurrection. And one of the great hymns we sing is Christ the Lord is Risen Today, written by Charles Wesley. Uh, it has this verse in it. It says, lives again our glorious King Alleluia, where, O oh, death, is now they sting. Alleluia, once he died our souls to save. 
Alleluia. Where's thy victory? Boasting grave. Alleluia. It's a great rousing hymn, and we sing it, and we all enjoy singing it. It's uh, tremendously joyful and, uh, and uplifting as we do it. Uh, you know, John and Charles were the two founders of the Methodist movement, and uh, John's the more well-known. Uh, John never married uh, through his life. Well, he did marry, but he never had children through his life. Uh, Charles married and, and raised a family in Bristol, England and then later in London when they moved over there. Uh, his daughter became a companion to John often when he was traveling and became an evangelist. Uh, his two sons both became musicians. Uh, one was more of a performer, the other was one who wrote music, uh, but they were both quite accomplished. But what we sometimes forget is that Charles Wesley also buried five of his children. There were five times that he held one of his children's hands while they died. And there were five times that he had a funeral service that he celebrated for one of his children who had died. There were five times that he walked with that coffin to the cemetery with one of his children. And there were five times that he watched as they buried one of his children. It's inconceivable for me to even imagine what that would be like. And yet it was after that that he penned the words to this hymn. It was after bearing five of his children that he could write, where's thy victory boasting grave? And you can't do that unless the resurrection is truly real in your life. Unless you can understand that, that death doesn't have the final word. That passage of Paul in Romans you know, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Not even death or life, nothing. You have to truly live in that to be able to pin words like this and to sing words like this in the aftermath of that kind of loss. In the resurrection hope, it, it overcomes the despair that can dwell in us. And resurrection hope reminds us that, that the gift of love that God shares with us leaves behind more than death takes away. Leaves behind more. That, that when we lose those people that we do love, that there is more that has been given to us than what death can take away. And we can hold on to that hope. Um, when Bishop Oliphant retired from uh, active duty in the Methodist Church, he moved his office from the church building to the home, and they were setting up his office and the house and his desk and everything. And, and on his desk, uh, there was a sheet of glass, and under that, he had a couple of pieces of paper. This was typed on one of them, and on another one was typed this verse, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And so as they were doing that, they were wondering about that, and, and, uh, and Clayton and Mary, they asked their dad, said, well, you know, why, why do you have this, you know, on your desk? Well, you know, and so Bishop Oliphant's response to them was, because it's the summation of the gospel, the message of Easter. When all is said and done, God's love wins. When all is said and done, God's love wins. That understanding that Paul could proclaim that nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And because of that, even when we lose people to death, the gift that's been given to us in their life continues, and the gift of their life continues. We don't sink into despair. We don't sink into fear. We don't count all as loss. And we continue to live in the promise and the hope that in the end, God wins. So my brothers and sisters, on this day, this Memorial Day weekend, when we are uh, 
remembering and celebrating the lives of those who have given their lives in service for this country, uh, either in the military or as first responders. Uh, I'm just going to ask if you can really step into that place and make that proclamation. You know, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Let's pray. Mighty God, we come on this morning. And we confess to you that there are times in our lives when we struggle with fear. There are times in our lives when we struggle with the darkness. There are times in our lives when we struggle with grief. And we ask that you draw close to us, especially in those moments, that your life might touch our lives, that we might know your presence with us, that we might know the resurrection not just as a reality, I mean, not just as an idea, but as a reality that's operative in our lives, that speaks to us the promise of your life and of your love, that always brings more than what death can take away. So, Father, we ask on this day that you would make that resurrection hope strong and alive and vital in us. And we ask it in the name of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.